Well, at this time, I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles or your device, uh, whatever you have, to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles. You'll see we have these blue books at the end of each row. Uh, feel free to take a copy. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one. So please take it home with you. You don't even need to ask. We have plenty of them. And as we say each week, we know where to get more. <laughs> so please feel free. But we're looking at John 17. We're jumping back into our series through the book of John. And this morning, Dean will bring us God's word from John 17. And this morning, we're only focusing on the first five verses. The first five verses. So I'll invite you to follow along with me as I read John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Josh. One of the hardest things about living is seeing the big picture. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees. There's a story about Charles Lindbergh's daughter, Reeve, uh, that illustrates this well. Um, You you may recall who Charles Lindbergh is. He was the first pilot who, in 1927, made the first transatlantic flight Uh, over the Atlantic from New York to Paris. And, you know, we take flights around the world and even across the nation regularly, and we take it for granted, but that was quite a feat then. It was quite the deal. In 1997, 70 years after that famous flight, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. asked Lindbergh's daughter, Reeve, to come and speak for the family at that 70th anniversary. And uh, in the process, she was uh, brought her son, Ben. They arrived early, and, and... as a gent called a cherry picker, which is this kind of small crane with, a, with a, a bucket on it that you climb into to go up in high places. And they brought in the cherry picker, uh, Reeve and Ben got in the cherry picker, and they raised them up so that they could touch the Spirit of 76, the actual airplane that her father had uh, flown across the Atlantic 70 years earlier. Now, you, what you got to know for Reeve is this was an amazing moment because she had never actually touched the plane or been near it. So it was truly an emotional moment, and as she put her hands on the plane and thought of her father who had already died, uh, she just became, became really emotional, and she looked to her son, Ben, and she said, Ben, isn't this amazing? Think of what your father did, in, your grandfather did in history. Ben, who was a little guy, was looking around, and he said, yeah. I've never been in a cherry picker before. (laughs) Sometimes we miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes we see just the trees and not the bigger picture. 
And that's what we're going to talk about here today in John chapter 17 when we look at Jesus' prayer the very night before his death and resurrection. Jesus has been talking about some very important trees over the last three or four chapters. He's been talking about what it means to follow him, but suddenly in chapter 17, he takes a turn after talking for a while what it means to follow him, and he goes to prayer to get to the big picture, to get to the big picture of what God was up to in their midst. He focuses on things that matter. Questions for our text as we look at it today. How does Jesus pray about the big picture in light of his coming death and resurrection? And what can we do differently to pray and even to live in the big picture of things that really matter in the end? So you'll find your outline on the back of your bulletin where you'll, we'll look at how Jesus prays as our priest how he prays for glory, how he prays for eternal life, and how he prays for even eternal glory. So let's dive into verse 1, where Jesus reveals to everyone there and even to us his prayer life. Look at that in verse 1. Look at what it says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So we've taken some time to look at Jesus' teaching and ministry throughout John. Now we find ourselves at this pivotal moment where Jesus is facing the cross. It is literally hours before his arrest and his death on that cross. And he's announced to his disciples that he's leaving. That's the shocker that comes out of this very text as he's with his disciples and after being with them for about three years, he says, I'm out of here. I'm going. The disciples are going, what, what are you talking about? He proceeds to tell them what it looks like to actually live in him and to follow him while he's gone. And now he starts praying just out of the blue after all that he's said to them. And he does it in an extraordinary way. This isn't just any prayer. John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture. And here is where Jesus pulls the curtain back and gives us a grand vision of how he sees the big picture for himself, and dare I say, even for us. Now, real quick, the fact that Jesus is praying reminds us that prayer is a huge part of his life. He's been doing this throughout his life on earth, and it wasn't a thing he did in his spare time like, oh yeah, I need to pray. It was really the very core of who he was and what he did. And remember, we've talked about this in the past in our earlier series in the year about prayer, that Jesus did it to engage relationship with the Father, to be in fellowship with the Father. It was the very core of how he lived life. Now, we know from the Gospels that Jesus prayed by himself. He disciples to pray the same. He prayed with passion. He prayed with tears, as he will in Gethsemane uh, after this event. And the real key is this. He prayed with a purpose. He prayed with a larger purpose in mind. Now, what's that got to do with us? Jesus prays because of his unique role in our life and in the very world's life. See, we talked about this early. You heard it in the confession. We, Jesus is a prophet, a priest, and a king. He's the Lord of all. Those are his roles, prophet, priest, and king, as the Lord of all. Prophets speak from God to man. Priests speak from man to God. Jesus is our high priest as Christians who prays from us to God. 
He prays for himself in this passage, these first verses. But we'll find as he evolves, he prays for the disciples then. And he even prays for us, as we'll see in sermons over the next few weeks. Jesus prays as our great high priest. Now, somebody at this point may say, okay, wait a minute, wait, wait, priest. Aren't we kind of past all that priest stuff? Uh, What are you talking about? I mean, I don't need a priest. Well, actually, you have priests all over your life, and you don't know it. A priest is a go-between. The language of Scripture is a mediator to help you gain favor with another. You have bosses over you that help you gain favor with a project or, or with higher management in some ways. You have family who go to bat for you in various situations. You have health care workers who sometimes serve as a go-between between you and your doctors. And when you need help legally, you have attorneys to serve as a voice for you when really you don't know exactly what to say in the same way. Jesus is our go-between between us and God, and he does that in order to connect us to God. Now, that's the big idea of Christianity here in Jesus as a priest, is that we often think we can connect to God just whenever we want. But as sinners coming before a holy God, we can't go to God whenever we want, however we want. We need a mediator. We need somebody, a go-between in Christ who's died on the cross for our sin and has covered us with his righteousness so that we can actually approach the throne of grace. We can actually go to God even in prayer. Jesus here is speaking as our mediator. And not only that, he's speaking and praying as a mediator who gets us, who understands us. Listen to Hebrews 4. It says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses as we are yet without sin. Jesus prays for us because he's been there. Jesus prays to the Father for himself because he's faced challenges in his life. Why did Jesus pray? What was he after? Now, we've said this before. He prays to enter in relationship with the Father. But I like what Don Carson says about this, that Jesus, if you look at most of his prayers, that he typically prays when he came to a challenge in life. When he was suffering, when his mission was getting hard, dare I say it, when his mission was getting successful, he was praying. And here's why he prayed, so he could stay on course with obedience, so he could stay on course following the will of the Father. Praying is apparently crucial to our following Jesus in obedience. The equation would go like this. No prayer and connecting with God, no obedience. That's kind of a way to think about it. Now, why was prayer for obedience so important to Jesus at this point in his life? Well, he's got at least three motivations I can come up with. The first is this. He's praying to be a model for the disciples. I mean, that's the obvious one how we should pray when we're called to obey Jesus in challenges. We go to him and we engage the Lord. Much fruit, but he also links it to prayer if you read carefully there. The second motivation is a divine motivation. Jesus says in our text, the hour has come. Do you see that in that first verse? The hour he's talking about is the appointed time in God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross. Do not miss this. The hour is something Jesus has known about his whole life. 
dare I say it, before the foundations of the world, he and the Father had a plan. Had a plan where Jesus would ultimately die for the sins of his people. His death, Jesus, the hour has come. Now, this brings me to kind of the Avengers movie. Of course, we've heard all kinds of stuff this week about Infinity Endgame, which came out this weekend. I have not seen it. Some of you probably have, and you're more experts than I am. But those who aren't familiar with the Avengers series, it's about how the superheroes like Iron Man, Captain America, others, uh, 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 take on a supervillain named Thanos. Thanos. Now, Thanos has gained the power to control the whole world and universe, and he actually starts doing it in the movie, the last movie that was called Infinity uh, Game. Now, I read a quote this week about Thanos and what he said. And he says in the movie about destiny, he says, quote, dread it, run from it, destiny still arrives. Jesus is praying uh, so he won't give in to dread or run from his called purpose under the plan of God. He's praying to stay on mission and to carry out his destiny at the cross. Now that brings me to the third motivation of why Jesus is doing this. And it's a very human. I just gave you a divine motivation, but now I want to give you a very human motivation that's even in our text. Jesus is wrestling with disappointment, with rejection, with what's coming, even from his friends. Now, how can I say that? What are you talking about, Dean? How is that there? Well, if you go back to the end of chapter 16, in verses 30 through 32, you'll find that there Jesus predicts, these are the verses right before he starts praying, Jesus predicts his disciples will abandon him, will reject him. He knows what's coming. Brutal crucifixion at the hands of enemies. Uh, The abandonment of his friends. Judas' betrayal. Peter's denial. The rest of the disciples leaving him. And the wrath of God coming on him at the cross so we might be forgiven. You don't think that hurts? That hurts the human Christ. And here's how that applies to us. When you experience deep disappointment, where do you go next? Where do you go next spiritually? What are you disappointed and hurt by now? When you wrestle with fear, anxiety, even rejection, loss, Jesus is showing us that you turn to the sovereign king and loving king first, even in prayer. Jesus is about to go through the worst experience imaginable, crucifixion, rejection of friends and and enemies. And what does he do? He goes to the Father and clings to him. He clings to him with life and dependence. Follow him in that rhythm in your disappointment. Don't go to entertainment first. Don't go to food first. Don't go to this first or that first. Go to Jesus first and seek him out in your prayers. Now that begs the question, what does Jesus pray for? Well, what is exactly he's asking for? Well, look for his first big ask right there in the first verse. His first ask is uh, the end of the verse where he says, Father, 
The hour has come, glorify your son and the son, that the son may glorify you. This, guys, is the main request throughout the whole prayer. The kind of ruling petition that Jesus gives in our text. And what do you know? The very first thing he asks for in the entire prayer, knowing the cross is coming, knowing that he's going to go through suffering and rejection from friends and enemies, is this. He prays for the glory of God. He prays for the glory of God. He even repeats it in verse 5 when he says, glorify me. Why would he pray for glory and the glory of God? Well, we might expect that he would ask for removal of pain. Isn't that what we do in our prayers whenever we're in pain? Oh, Lord, I don't like this. Take it away. Might we expect that God would turn the tables and he would ask God to crush the enemies before he even made it to the cross? Well, some of these prayers actually show up in the prayers of Gethsemane. But instead, Jesus leads with this unique prayer of praying for God's glory with the cross in mind. That's what Jesus wants, first and foremost, in his life. That's the big picture for Jesus as he prays. Now, this is the clue. This is a clue to us to understand how God works. God's glory comes in Jesus' suffering and death. Remember, Jesus loses it. Well, here Jesus is modeling it. Glory doesn't come by a constant going up of the ladder of success, spiritually, vocationally, family, achievement-wise. Glory comes from going down to the bottom of the ladder to death. That's the way of the kingdom, the upside-down way of the kingdom, if you will. To use infinity war language, if I may, if I may God's glory is the end game of all end games. Jesus makes the glory of God his very purpose in life. It's where he wants things to end up. Now let's unpack this simple prayer for just a few moments. Jesus prays for his glory first when he says, glorify the Son. He's praying for himself, for his own glory. He wants the Father to bring glory in his death, in his resurrection, in his exaltation, even ascension. And what do you know? God does that. He takes Jesus' death, which looks like, from a human point of view, like a sure human loss, like, man, this guy's supposed to be king, and he's ended up being crucified like a criminal. He takes that and turns it into the greatest win of all time in our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, because Jesus took the wrath of God that you and I deserve. But he's not done there. He takes the resurrection of Jesus. And he brings him to life to vindicate him, to vindicate us and our future. So that we can know we are engaged with a living Lord. Not a dead God or just a a God who's way back there in the past that we can be inspired by. This is a living Lord who's engaged right now. Not only that, there's more to his prayer for glory Jesus actually says there is a purpose for his glory. Did you see that in the prayer? He says this, glorify your son in order that the son may glorify the father. Jesus' desire for glory is not just about himself, but it's also for the father as well. That's the Trinity works. In the relationships of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the father glorifies the son, the son glorifies the father, the spirit glorifies the father and the son. 
What is the chief end of God? The chief end of God is to glorify himself first. God is more about his glory than anything else because he's God. Now, a couple applications come out of this for us. The first is this. This is a hint of what real glory looks like in life for us too, according to God and from Jesus' point of view. Glory is never achieved alone. Glory is never achieved alone. Now, we live in an ambitious, achieving culture in South Charlotte here. That's not all bad. I'll say there's a lot of great things that we are made to do by God, called to do by God in family, business, other endeavors. But even Jesus didn't see his glory as being for himself alone. He shares the glory with God the Father. As you build your career, as you raise your kids to do even big things, Remember, there is a larger purpose for God's glory, and a larger purpose for your life, and that's for God's glory. Let me put it this way. In our culture, especially in South Charlotte, we like looking good. We really do. It's a big deal to us. Looking good is a high value in South Charlotte. I know, I'm from Charlotte. I'm from South Charlotte originally. But the whole point of our lives is to make God look good. Bring him glory, even over our looking good. That's the supreme thing is God's glory above ourselves. Second application here. Did you notice the interesting dynamic? Jesus does this sometimes. It's a little drives you crazy, but did you notice how he prayed about himself in the third person? He didn't say me. He talks about the son in the third person. You know, glorify your son, that the son, uh, uh, father may be glorified by the son. You got a little, Jesus, what are you doing, man? It's a little weird when we hear people praying in the third person about themselves, right? Well, here's what you got to understand. This is why he does it. People are listening like you and me. He's modeling what it looks like to pray for the glory of God ourselves and how we should pray in our lives. This prayer that Jesus prayed is our big picture prayer. It's how we understand how our lives fit into a larger plan, into the grace of an infinite God. When you pray about the many things you encounter in life, the challenges and trouble, hey, let me just put it this way, the successes you're going to have in life, and you already have. The Christian prays this prayer to calibrate our hearts to what we're really after. We pursue God's glory by praying, Father, no, Glorify your son in order that the son may glorify you. That's our prayer. That's another way to say, hallowed be your name. Some of you know I'm an electrical engineer by background. So, yeah, I'm a geek when it comes to electricity things, yes. There was a man named Nikita Tesla who invented something that affects your everyday life. You probably maybe have never heard Nikita Tesla's name. But he was the genius who came up with the idea of alternating current or AC electricity. They found that DC electricity, a constant of voltage and current, wouldn't work over long power lines. But when they did it on AC, then that worked on long power lines. The AC form of electricity is what you get from your wall every day when you plug in everything you love, like your phone, for example. It's what runs the world. Philip Yancey 
tells a great story of how uh, Tesla would often sit in his house during a storm, especially at night. And whenever there was a storm outside, he had this big picture window. He'd pull up a chair, he'd sit in it, and every time he saw a bolt of lightning, he would cheer, he would applaud. And the reason is, he was a genius who understood the wonders of electricity, and he could recognize the genius of God, the great electrician, the author of electricity. And he cheered. That's what he would do. That's our job, guys, in life, is to cheer for God and his glory in all that we do, to recognize that he deserves our cheers first and foremost above others. So, Jesus is praying, and his chief prayer is for the glory of God. That's the big picture. That's the thing that matters over and above all things that don't. At this point, so I say, okay, so what? God's supposed to get glory. We got the point, Dean. What difference does the big picture of God's glory make? Well, Jesus tells us the implications in the next few verses very simply. He tells us the implications for us right now, right where we're living here in verses 2. Look at that with me in 2b through 3. This is what he says. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what's the implication for God's glory today? In our lives. Well, here's the thing. The Father gives to Christ that Christ may give to us. The Father gives to Christ that Christ may give to us. Let me unpack that a little. Jesus has been given all authority. That's the language of lordship. He says it multiple times throughout the Gospels. He's the Lord of all. Christ has been crowned as king over everything. History. Even your history. Your personal history is under his reign. He has a purpose for everything. And let me just say, when he's the king and sovereign has a purpose for everything, that even means the hard things of life that we don't always understand, that I don't understand. Take the cross as the best example. Again, from a human point of view, we don't understand why the Son of God would be crucified, but from a divine point of view and plan, it comes to life what he's really about. So what purpose does Jesus being crowned and going to the cross mean and serve for us? Well, Jesus died that he may give us eternal life. The cross is where we find life. God is revealed as a giving God. Most of us tend to think, like Eve in the garden with Adam and Eve, that God is holding back, that he really doesn't like us that much, and that he'll just give us a little once in a while just to get us off his back. But he's giving God so that John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God gives us the free gift of eternal life. Why does that make a difference? It's free. You and I live in a world where you have to work hard for anything you get. And there's not, that's not all bad. Learning responsibility and working hard is a good thing. But here's the wonder of the gospel. You can't work hard enough to get eternal life. 
the standard of God to get eternal life, is 100% obedience to his law. Not 10% or 20% or 30 or 50%. 100% obedience to the law of God. Ready? Here we go. Let's all try for just a second. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Go. Yeah, I mean, I blew it after a couple, a millisecond. Yeah. But here's the wonder of what Jesus did on the cross. He died for our sin. How we didn't obey. He covers us with his righteousness by living a holy life. And then he gives to us eternal life. The ability to engage God with life that we were made to live. If you've ever had a longing like something's missing, I would submit to you maybe what's missing is eternal life in your life. Because that's what you were made to engage in the glory of Jesus. Now that brings up the real question. What is Jesus talking about when he talks about eternal life? Now, in our culture today, it might be easy to think, well, eternal life equals when I get what I want next and I feel satisfied for at least a little while. But then you get going to the next. But what Jesus talks about is something different, is eternal life as knowing God. Did you see that in our text? This eternal life that they may know you, he's talking about a personal knowing, an experiential knowing, as if the, you, the same kind of knowing you have with people in your own life. Why is that important? Very often, we, even as Christians, think eternal life is just going to heaven. Yes, but it's knowing God in heaven and knowing God now. Eternal life starts now, according to Jesus. It's like this. Some think that knowing God is like going to a Panthers game. Here's what knowing God is like for many of us. A Panthers game, you can do, you can do a Panthers game one of a couple ways. One way is you can buy tickets, get up in the stands, and watch the game. You get to know all the players. You get to know the plays. We even have opinions from the stand on what they should be doing. Punning, what are you, crazy? That's often how we think of knowing God is watching the game from the stands. But there's another way to know, and it's the way Jesus is talking about there. It's when you get out of the stands and you get on the field and play with the God of the universe. That's actually what Christianity is at its heart. Is you getting out of the stands and watching from watching God and engaging him personally on the field of play in everyday life in everything you do. That's what knowing God is. Engaging him in his glory in everything you do. How does knowing begin? Well, if you aren't a believer today, let me call you to stop living in the stands. Even if you have to, stop commenting on God from a distance and engage him where he really wants to engage you, on the field, maybe even in the Bible. Get down on the field and start following Jesus by trusting him as the Lord of your life. Faith is where we begin this walk with Jesus so that we know him. Start a new life of living for someone else's glory rather than your own. And you know what you might find is that you're free. You're free. For those who are following Christ today, there's a similar call here. Many of you have been trying to follow Jesus on the field, but I'll tell you what you've been doing. You've put yourself on the sidelines. You've actually put yourself on the sidelines and you're not playing.
You're too busy doing religious activity and not engaging Jesus at the heart and in really getting a picture of his wonder and his glory in the process. Stop merely studying facts about Jesus and actually start interacting with who he is in your life. Here's what I can look like. Whenever you have a big win or a big loss, that is a magnificent opportunity for you to engage Jesus in his word and listen to the gospel. And shall I say it, pray. Pray, glorify your son, father, that he might glorify you in my life. It's in prayer that you actually dwell on the truth that God is sovereign, that God loves you. I mean, you hear it all the time, right? But it's slowing down in our busy lives, pausing and enjoying the fact that he loved you personally. He wants to be with you right now. That's what it looks like to know the Lord, to engage him personally, and to have life. Let me give you what Paul says about this in my final thoughts. Paul speaks of knowing God because of his experiences in life with God, both the good and the hard, the challenging ones and the big wins. And this is what he says. But whatever gain I had in Philippians 3, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Do you hear that? I want to know God is what he's saying. Now I know many of us may be struggling with that thought today. That's because you're on the sideline. <laughs> but what does it mean to know him? It means you start following him and you start with that prayer of Jesus. Father, glorify your son, even in my life. Jesus prays for glory at the right hand of God. You can know him right now because he's a living God. Jesus is your advocate praying for you right now. Jesus wants to know you. There's a song by Rascal Flatts called Things That Matter and Things That Don't. And the verses sum up in a lot of ways what I've been saying today. It says this. This is what, this is what they sing. They say, time ain't on my side. Don't want to leave this world with wide and eye, wide and eye. Sometimes I take on this world by myself thinking I got all the answers. Don't need anybody's help. Well, God was right there waiting for me all along to fall down on my knees and surrender all, things that matter, things that don't. That's the big picture of God's glory, us on our knees, worshiping the Christ, encountering him by knowing him. That's God's end game for God. That is God's end game for you. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this blessing, and we want to learn to pray, Lord, as a people so that we know you intimately, personally, and follow you 
with an engaged relationship, we're going to need your grace and your help for you to move towards us in that way through the Spirit. And Lord, we pray you teach us, even as a congregation, how to pray this great prayer. Father, glorify your Son that he might glorify you in us. Teach us, Lord, this kind of prestige so that our hearts may be calmed and we might come to you and you're praying for us. In Jesus' name, amen.